Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. We'll bring it back together now. So before Jacko brings our um, next bit of the word, and please continue your conversations, I should say, afterwards. Um, We are having our community lunch on, which is Mexican, uh, tacos, whatever you want to call it, um, next door. So that's completely free. And um, we would love everyone to come along because we've got food and, uh, yeah, we want to feed you. Um, So uh, we are going to be reading from the Old Testament in Obadiah and then from the New Testament in Acts. So we'll start off in Obadiah, um, and it is the entire of Obadiah. It's only one chapter, don't worry. Um, All right. Uh, The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy that was sent to the nations to say, rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will, make you a small, you, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down from the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers come, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink, as be as this they have never been. But on Mount Zion there will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken." People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the lands of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. And next is coming into Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. And that's page 1706. I'm reading from the NIV in your pews. So Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, who was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. 
In Damascus, there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight, Straight Street and ask for the man, named, uh, the man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen that a man named Ananias will come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Thanks very much for reading, Ruth. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you, uh, both those in the room and also online. Uh, welcome to City Light North. It's good to see you this morning. Um, we are in this series called Books We Don't Read, and we're up to week four as we work our way through the 12 minor prophets, uh, books we don't read because they're books we often don't read. Uh, they're kind of a bit strange and quirky and hard to get our heads around and so we sometimes can easily skip over these ones and jump into the New Testament. But uh, we're taking 12 weeks out to work our way through the 12 minor prophets. Um, I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to share with them um, if you had any good news this week. Uh, what's a piece of good news that you might have had this week? Maybe the good news you had this week is that finally daylight saving has come. Um, that's not good news for everyone. I've had a chat with some people already who don't like the lost hour. I don't like the lost hour. Um, maybe it's good news that you actually found the book of Obadiah um, before Ruth kind of finished reading it. I don't know. Maybe that's good news. Turn to the person next to you. Share a little bit of good news with the person next to you from the past week and we'll come back together in a minute or so. Go. Okay, everyone, I'll get you to come back. We can keep uh, discussing our good news over some tacos and Mexican in a moment's time. I wonder if you would be, it would be a good thing actually for you to do, to turn back to the book of Obadiah or have that open in front of you. Um, if you don't have any idea how to find Obadiah, jump into the Old Testament. You'll find some of the big guns like Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If you find Ezekiel, turn forward through Daniel and then you'll hit Hosea, you'll hit Joel, you'll hit Amos and then you'll find little Obadiah. There you go. Um, or just use your contents page. That's what it's there for as well. No shame. No shame in City Light Church North Adelaide. Straight to the contents page. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for you know, all the good things you give us. We thank you for this new day. We thank you for the warmth that's in the air, a sense of the seasons turning. Uh, we do thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy that's new and fresh to us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. Father, we thank you for the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit and through your word, we would see Jesus this morning We'd hear Jesus this morning and we'd love Jesus this morning. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we do know, remind us. And may we all leave here loving Jesus, living for him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got good news for you today. And here it is. The good news that I have for you today is that the terrible evil that we see in our world today will not last forever, will not have the last word. It's good news, I would think, that the, those who are relentlessly cruel, wicked, violent and brutal will not get away with all of those things forever. It's good news that there will be justice and that in the end all wrongs will be put right. That is good news. Why is this good news? 
Well, because God says so. The Bible tells us that the God of all goodness and love and mercy and holiness will not tolerate evil and hatred and cruelty and injustice forever. And that's both the promise of the Bible and also the threat of the Bible. There will be a day of reckoning, says God. He will put all things right. And that will include judgment as well as grace and mercy. We've sung already this morning a couple of songs that speak about the coming kingdom of God, that speak about the holiness and the justice of God to come. And that day of the Lord, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, when God's justice and he, when he makes all things right, that's a big part of the gospel. This, that's how Paul puts it. If you know your Bible, Romans chapter 2, he talks about the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, when God will repay every single person according to their deeds, what they've done. That day will take place, and on that day, God will judge every person's secrets through Jesus Christ. That's what his gospel is, the day of the Lord, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness and all wrongs are made right. And that's what this little book of Obadiah is all about. In fact, you can see, if you have Obadiah open in front of you, verse 15, verse 15 tells us the day of the Lord is near for everyone, for all nations. And believe it or not, this is good news. Doesn't sound like it. I don't know if you felt like it. Doesn't sound like it in the book of Obadiah. But this book of Obadiah was written as a word of encouragement and a word of hope for God's people. God's people, the nation of Judah, who were living as exiles, who were suffering in Babylon, far from their home, here is a word of hope. Now that's a bit hard to see, and I dare say as the book of Obadiah was read by Ruth this morning, you might have thought it sounded a bit strange, sounded a bit tough, sounded a bit sharp, a bit brutal. I don't know, maybe you felt like this is a classic Old Testament-y book. And it is. And you might be thinking, like, how on earth on this beautiful Sunday morning are we going to get anything out of the book of Obadiah? It seems prickly and harsh and Old Testament-y. Um, several years ago, I had the great joy of um, going to Sri Lanka uh, to teach the Bible. Um, I was really excited to go to Sri Lanka to eat the Bible, but what I was really, not quite, not more excited, but one of the things I was also excited about was getting to eat Sri Lankan chili crab. Yeah, who likes crab? Yes, we should go and have a crab fest sometime. But I hadn't really eaten that much crab before, but I was, I was told it's awesome, it's spicy. And, and so I remember sitting down at this restaurant and these, this massive crab was put in front of me and I was like wearing like a like a hazmat suit, you know, in case I got stuff all over me. And uh, I remember getting the, the, the crabs in front of me and it's covered in this delicious chili sauce and I had one of those like cleaver things to crack through the shell. I remember cracking through endless amounts of shell to kind of only get like a tiny little bit of crab meat. I've come all the way for this. Sometimes I think the Old Testament can feel a little bit like going to Sri Lanka to eat chili crab and cracking through all kinds of shell and getting nothing much out of it, right? Well, I want you to come with me. I want you to trust me. And, and let's see what we find in Obadiah this morning as we crack into this book. What's Obadiah all about? Well, the opening verse of Obadiah, Obadiah chapter one, of, not chapter one, Obadiah verse one, it's all about Edom. And you're sitting here this morning going, who? Edom? What? Where? Like, who are these people? Well, Edom, here's a map coming up on the screen. Edom was a, um, a kingdom just to the south of Judah. So you've got Judah there, um, pointing there, so north, and then just below is this kingdom of Edom. The Edomites, they were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and therefore these two nations, Judah and Edom, were kin. They were like brother nations. And they lived next door to each other. They shared sort of a common border, Edom and Judah. 
And yet, there was a long, long, long history of enmity between Judah and Edom, these two kingdoms that had existed for centuries. It's amazing, right, how people can live so close to each other and be such enemies. I suppose it's, if you know your history a bit, it's a bit like England and France. It's a bit like Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur, who kind of like basically are next door to each other and hate each other's guts. Um, or it's a bit like South Australia and Victoria. You know, like, it's strange. We live right next to each other, but there's enmity. It's sad, but it's truth. But in the case of Judah and Edom, it, the hostility, the enmity went right back to when God's people came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Back towards the beginning of the Bible when huge numbers of God's people, men, women, and children, had fled as refugees from state-sponsored genocide under Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and they'd walked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers in the wilderness trying to find their way to a better place. Sound familiar? This is what happened when God's people reached the borders of Edom. Keep a finger in Obadiah, flick back with me to Numbers chapter 20. This is what happened when God's people, fleeing for their lives from Pharaoh hit the border of Edom. Numbers chapter 20. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom saying, this is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Verse six, this is verse 16. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not grow through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We'll travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left we've passed, as we've passed until we've passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, verse 19, we will go along the main road. And if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we'll pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Verse 20, again they answered, you may not pass through. And that story has just been repeated in the book of Obadiah. We'll come to that in a moment. Here in the midst of a refugee crisis, as we see in many parts of our world even today, God was speaking into it and he still speaks into it today. In the book of Obadiah, the Lord says that Edom will face a catastrophic reversal of fortune. God's going to bring them down. He's going to humble them as a whole people and they're going to experience the judgment of God. So let's take a closer look at Obadiah, and first of all, we're going to look at it, point one, under the title, A National Collapse. This is verses two to nine of the book of Obadiah. In verses two to nine, Obadiah predicts the complete collapse of Edom as a country. Now, this would have been really surprising because the Edomites thought they were pretty secure as a people. They had resources, they had friends, they thought they could resist all the attacks, but God says, no, 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 no. I'll bring my judgment on you in spite of all of that. And firstly, in spite of what you think is a secure location. Have a look at verses two through four. See, says the Lord, I will make you small among the nations, Edom, and you will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. I think we've got a picture. Is it coming? Is there a picture? Hey, there we go. This is, this is Edom. Edom, everybody. Edom um, was located on a, on a high plateau. You know, city built on a high plateau with you know, big cliffs and things like that. You know, how could you attack a city that was you know, perched up high on cliffs way above people? They thought they were secure from all the attacks 
But geography would be no defense to them on the day of the Lord. I'll make you small, declares the Lord. I'll bring you down, says the Lord. Secondly, they would be judged in spite of their stashed wealth. Verses 5 and 6. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape prickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau, Edom, will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. You see, Edom had all kinds of hidden wealth. They made their wealth largely through trading and taxation via the highways that ran through the country. So, you know, north and south and east and west. And so they had this hidden resource, all this money, economic security. But verse 6, God says, it'll be pillaged. The whole nation will be cleaned out, bankrupt. Thirdly, though, we've got trusted friends, said Edom. Verse 7, all your allies, though, will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. They had all these allies, right, from all the surrounding nations. If they were attacked, they'd say, nah, fine, all our friends, they'll just come and help us. They'll help us out. But no, they won't. They'll turn traitor and desert you, Edom. And finally, the Lord says through Obadiah, they will collapse despite their wisdom and all their weapons. Verses 8 and 9. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in slaughter. Edom had a reputation for its wise advisors and sort of political intelligence. They were clever, they thought they knew how to navigate all the storms, plus they had a super powerful army, but even their wisdom and their weapons will not help them on the day of the Lord. So verses two to nine is a picture for us of a national collapse in which none of the things they trusted, none of the things that they'd look to for security would protect them. Their geography, their money, their allies, their intelligence or their armies, all will count for nothing. Now this was a corporate judgment, right, on the whole nation. If you were here last week, Phil helped us see in the book of Amos that judgment came upon God's people, Israel. When God judges a whole people, it's kind of a collective suffering, even though the guilt and the reason for it is often largely down to the leaders or the government or the kings of the day. But the whole nation suffers. It's a national collapse. But some of these same principles of what Edom was trusting in What they believed would help them also applies to individuals. Ask yourself this question. What are you trusting in today for your own security? For today, for tomorrow, for your future? We're prone to put our confidence, aren't we, in all the things that Edom trusted in. Where you live, your money, your property, your friends, your good health. I was at CV conference yesterday, a conference for those who are exploring, um, maybe working or doing full-time paid ministry for their work. And um, we were reminded in one of the Bible talks to, to not put our confidence in the things of this world, but to put our confidence in the promises of God. Um, But I was reminded that, you know, sometimes I can find myself easily kind of getting sucked into finding security and and all of that in where I live. Um, You know, Adelaide. And I was reminded yesterday, the guy who was preaching yesterday was from Melbourne, so he was a bit dark. Because I don't know if you know this, but Adelaide's bumped Melbourne off being the most livable city in Australia. Adelaide is now the most livable city in Australia. We are the third most livable city in the world. How's that? Third's not, it's not as good as first, but it's pretty good, yeah? It's easy, though, to think that, you know, security and comfort and safety, I've got it all here. But Melbourne doesn't have number one anymore. Likewise, Adelaide. You know what, like, we've got to be careful. Where do we put our trust? 
I don't often go to the ATM anymore to get money out because I don't even know if money even exists anymore, right? It's all electronic. But you ever had that moment where you, you know, if you do go to the ATM and you put your card in and you press the buttons, you know, you cover it so no one can see it and, you know, you withdraw, in my case, like $5. No, you know, like you, you withdraw a little bit of money and then your balance used to flash up on the screen. I had this experience all the time. If my balance was healthy, I'd feel this sense of confidence and security that everything's going to be okay. But if my balance was a little bit, I don't know, low, I could easily feel pretty shaky. Was this a reminder to me that I think I put way too much hope and confidence and find too much security in my money? When the day of the Lord comes, says Obadiah, you're going to need something more than any or all of the things that Edom trusted in. All of which, when we actually stop to think about it, all of them can disappear in a flash. And for some people, they do. Ask Job. And so my question again, what are you trusting in? What am I trusting in? Or maybe better to ask, who are you trusting in? We'll keep that question in mind as we come back to the Edomites and back to the text of Obadiah. Uh, we need to ask, like, why was this national collapse actually going to happen? Um, what's, what prompted such dramatic intervention from the Lord? Well, so we move now from point one, national collapse, and we pivot to point two, national condemnation. National condemnation, verses 10 through to 14. Um, as with any book of the Bible, we need to look at Obadiah in its sort of specific historical context as much as we can. Um, and what happened was this. Here's a bit of the backstory. Um, so in the year 587 BC, the Babylonians, they were the superpower of the day. Um, northern Syria today, basically, that's where they were. The Babylonians came in and they invaded Judah and destroyed the country. Here's a picture kind of depicting the scene. Um, so this is Judah, the Babylonians had come in 587 BC, um, destroyed the country, they'd besieged the capital, which is pictured there at the back, you know, the capital, which is Jerusalem. Um, they'd besieged Jerusalem for about 18 months, resulting in disease and starvation. In the spring of 586 BC, so about a year later, or 18 months later, um, the Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, they entered the city. There was violence. There was destruction. There was burning. There was starved people. There was bloodshed. There was slaughter. And heaps of people, as they were able, tried to escape the city. A horde of desperate refugees fleeing for their lives from the brutality of the Babylonians. Desperate to find safety, desperate to find refuge somewhere else. Again, does it sound a bit familiar? And how did the Edomites respond? What did the Edomites, in the moment of their brother Judah's disaster, do? Well, verses 10 through 14 tell us, and it's a pretty shocking catalogue. It starts with sheer inhumanity. Verses 10 to 11, how did the Edomites respond to Judah's desperate plight, their brother nation? Verse 10, because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. Not only did they refuse to help their kinsmen and women, not only did they stand aside when the Babylonians were attacking, they actively helped the enemy. They took sides with the Babylonians, no empathy, no compassion, just heartless hatred and inhumanity. So that we, that the response was inhumane. Secondly, there was gloating. Verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. I mean, Edom rejoices. They cheered, they clapped the Babylonians as they destroyed Jerusalem. And the exiles of Judah, when they arrived in Babylon, they did not forget it. 
So members of Jerusalem are exiled. Judah are exiled to Babylon. And there by the rivers of Babylon, they remembered the terrible grief and the bitterness they experienced. You know Psalm 137? Probably better known by Boney M. And they're, by the rivers of Babylon. You know, sing it with me. Where we sat. Come on. No. Um, Psalm 137, written by God's people in Babylon, the surviving exile sitting weeping by the rivers. In Psalm 137, verse 7, they say, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down. Well, God did remember, and so did Obadiah. Thirdly, in addition to the inhumanity and the gloating, there was looting, verse 13. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. The Edomites followed the Babylonians into the ruined city, and amidst the bloodshed and the flames and the slaughter, they just stole whatever they could. Someone else did the fighting, they did the thieving. Despicable behaviour. But not, not uncommon today. See, over the world, when disaster strikes, there are people ready to profit. I remember years ago, when there was the massive earthquake in Nepal, there were gangs from other countries nearby who came over the border kidnapped women and girls from the affected areas, selling them back into slavery and prostitution. Theft and looting. Perhaps worse, verse 14, there was trafficking. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The Edomites attacked and blocked the fleeing refugees. As the people of Judah sought to get away from starvation, sickness, and slaughter, the Edomites cut them down, kept them out, and sent them back. In fact, they probably kidnapped them and sold them back as slaves. We're told that probably happened. And these are precisely the kinds of scenes we've been witnessing even just in recent times not just off in far ancient places back in Judah and Edom, but even in parts of the world today we see these things happening, even in Europe. You know, who says the Bible is irrelevant, old-fashioned and out of date? This book is a modern story. This is raw. This is reality and it's relevant. And you see, there was something not just evil, but I would even say something kind of satanic about what the Edomites were doing, which is still with us today. The fact is that the Edomites as a nation have disappeared from history, just as God said it would happen, so it's happened. They were driven out about 100 years later. They ceased to exist. Um, these are, there's another picture coming up, I think, of some archaeological remains. I think we've got it. Is there a picture? No, didn't come through. Was doing it too early this morning. But we've got some archaeological, like all we see is like, you know, archaeologists kind of digging around in dirt. That's about as much as is left over. Um, or you can go um, to Petra in Jordan. And Petra is sort of part of the old Edomite kingdom. But really it's just now become a tourist attraction and a Hollywood set for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or whatever it was. The Edomites have gone... But the spirit of Edom lives on, doesn't it? The spirit of relentless, heartless, cruel brutality. King Herod, you know King Herod who we meet in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, for example? King Herod, he was an Edomite. Something of the spirit of Edom, I think, lived in him. Able to slaughter infants in Bethlehem. Driving Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus as refugees fleeing to Egypt. Evils and brutality still with us today. But, says Obadiah, God sees, God knows, and God will not forget. And that brings us to the last part 
of this book of Obadiah. We've seen national collapse and we've seen national condemnation, but in verses 15 through 21, we move to the day of the Lord and the coming of the kingdom of God. Verses 15 to 21, God will bring a reckoning. Verse 15 tells us that this wickedness and evil will rebound and repay its perpetrators. Verse 15, second half, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And that will happen in the day of the Lord. Verse 15. Now that phrase, day of the Lord, is of course what God said through the previous prophet Amos would happen to Israel and would be done to Israel. That's exactly what the discussion of Israel was all about. The day of the Lord's judgment on God's own people. But what verse 15 says is that God says, on the day of the Lord, I will execute judgment on my people. But verse 15 says that the day of the Lord in Obadiah is for not just Israel, but for all nations, for all people. Obadiah universalizes his message about Edom and applies it to every single person. The Edomites, they may have mocked, they may have gloated, but God is not mocked, says Paul in Galatians chapter 6. And he goes on to say, whatever a person sows, they will reap. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Said who? Jesus. And so the message here is that in God's government of the universe, all peoples, all nations, every individual will face the judgment of God on the day of the Lord. But the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who belong to him by faith and through obedience, those who are part of the people of God through repentance and faith. On that day, Obadiah says, God will protect and deliver his own. Whilst those who persist in unrepentant wickedness and cruelty and hard-heartedness will face the eternal judgment of God, the day of the Lord. So as we step back a little bit from the book of Obadiah, having looked at the book of Obadiah in its original sort of historical context, what can we learn from it today? Here in North Adelaide, City Light Church, North Adelaide, what can we learn from it? What are some of the lessons we can learn? Well, firstly, I think as we look at the book of Obadiah, we can learn more about the character of the God whom we love and worship. So firstly, we need to see, right, the book of Obadiah, not in isolation, but the book of Obadiah within its context of the, of, as part of the minor prophets, the 12 prophetic books from Hosea through to Malachi or Malachi, the final, the first Italian prophet. There you go. Um, the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament, right, didn't sort of see these 12 books as individual little books. The Hebrew canon of the Old Testament saw them as one big book and so called it the Book of the Twelve. And actually, when you combine all these 12 books together, they're about the same length as the book of Jeremiah. So you've got um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the book of the 12. One big book. And so flowing through this book of the 12 are all these wonderful themes and all these connections, which we haven't got time to kind of go through all of them this morning. But what we see building through the book of the 12 is a picture of the wonderful character of God. So for example, keep your finger in Obadiah and just flick back like almost like one page to the book of Amos, uh, where we were last week. And Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 says this, I will restore David's fallen shelter, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as, soon as it used to be, so they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Things. So right at the end of the book of Amos, we have God's vision for the future, which includes both the restoration of God's people and also speaks about the judgment of Edom and all the nations. Words of judgment, words of hope. It's almost as, the, as if the book of Obadiah then has been put next in line to be a commentary 
on Amos and Edom. So then you flip forward, right? Come with me through Obadiah, and then you come to the next prophet in line, the prophet Jonah, where we read this. First verse of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So you can imagine, right, as, as you're reading it, we'd be thinking, right, here we go. God's just smashed Edom and now Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach about against their wickedness and awesome, this is going to be great. Nineveh's going to get smashed like Edom. But surprise, surprise, the story of Jonah ends with God's mercy and compassion on Nineveh. The people of Nineveh, in the face of God's coming judgment, repent, turn back to him, and wonderfully, God suspends his judgment. So you see, God is portrayed as we move through these books of a God who is both just and merciful, This is the God who judges sin and will one day destroy all evil, but also delights to show mercy on every and any sinner who turns back to him. And the next prophet in line celebrates this wonderful reality about God. Turn with me to Micah. Micah, We're not going to go through every minor prophet, by the way. Um, Come with me to Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. As Micah says these wonderful words, Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. He cries out, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The God of justice the God of mercy. But of course, talking about repentance and forgiveness, right, must drive us forward through the scriptures to Jesus. I mean, what happens to the book of Obadiah when you come to Jesus and come to the gospel and come to the New Testament? Does Obadiah just kind of like, you know, I don't know, get eviscerated, just sort of melt away? Um, Is it irrelevant? Does it kind of hit the New Testament and go, whoa, too Old Testament-y, doesn't belong here. Not at all. Because Jesus also comes with words of severe condemnation for those who brutalize and exploit and oppress others, especially vulnerable people, the children. Listen to what, just listen to what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He then goes on, If anyone, this is Jesus, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's Jesus. I'll never be able to get out of my mind seeing an image many years ago now of little Island Cordy, who is that little fella who was washed up on a beach near Turkey, a little refugee boy running for his life. What do you think Jesus would say to those who caused little Island Cordy to drown off the coast of Turkey and his brother and his mother? and hundreds and hundreds of others. What would Jesus have to say about those who felt free to abandon those men and women in the back of a truck in the UK not so long ago? And didn't Jesus call us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice? 
And Jesus still calls us as his people to that prophetic responsibility for speaking out for our nations and to our nations to show compassion and justice in the midst of the world's evil and brutality. So you see, it's not the case that the New Testament somehow lessens and softens the reality of God's anger against evil and brutality in our world. Those things are to be judged by Jesus. But the gospel has another surprise. You see, all that evil and brutality and sin that we see concentrated and embodied in those Edomites, all that evil and sin, the combination of satanic evil and human evil was actually born by God himself on the cross in the person of Jesus. Think about those four things we thought about just a bit earlier, describing the inhumanity of the Edomites. They're all there in the story of the passion of Jesus. You know, see, Jesus suffered the inhumanity of rejection by his own people who gave him up for the cruelest of all deaths. And while that was happening, they mocked and they gloated at him. And they robbed him even of his clothing and they gambled it even as he was dying. And he was there because he'd been betrayed by one of those who claimed to be his friend. So many echoes in the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that, and through all of that that happened to Jesus, what was happening? God was bearing in himself, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment and the penalty for evil that we deserved. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus died in our place for our sake. It's because of the cross of Jesus that, your, the, that the story of your life and the story of my life can have, and I hope will have, a very different end to that of the Edomites and that which we deserve. I've got to finish. But the final verse of the book of Obadiah points us to the future. If you look at the final verse of the book of Obadiah, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The coming day of the Lord, it's the next great event in world history. The day of the Lord when Jesus returns and God's kingdom comes in all its fullness. And here we are called to be ready for it, to live in the light of it, and even to long for it. If you were here some time ago now, I, as one of the pastor's elders here at church when we were preaching, I called us as a church to embrace the Lord's Prayer. Um, as a prayer that we ought to be praying as God's people every day, not as some kind of just empty, hollow religious ritual, but as a way to kind of just drive deeply into our heads and our hearts and our bones and our sinews the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to trust that Jesus' words, as we pray those words, will change us, will shape us, will mould us. I don't know how you're going with that. I'm not going to ask anyone, not looking at anyone. But being ready for and longing for the day of the Lord is what we pray every single time. We pray through the Lord's Prayer. Every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we praying for? We're praying for that day, the day promised in the Old Testament, again promised in the New Testament, to be realized when Jesus comes back. That day is part of the gospel The day when Jesus comes back, the good news when he destroys all evil to fully redeem and restore his people and indeed to restore all of creation. And Obadiah points us to that future and urges us to be ready for it. And so my question to you this morning is, are you ready for it? 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, according to the Bible, we're all like the Edomites. We've all been enemies of God. We're all capable of despicable acts of inhumanity. And yet, and for all those things, we deserve the justice of God. And yet, wonderfully, God offers mercy and grace. Have you been reconciled to God through faith in Christ? And speaking to others in the room, if, you, if we are ready for it, if you have turned to Christ, if we are part of his kingdom, then can I urge us here at City Light Church North Adelaide to live and to work for compassion and justice in our world today? To stand out against the spirit of Edom at work in our world, the evil and the brutality and the oppression and the sin and the wickedness and the hard-heartedness. The day of the Lord is near. Obadiah verse 15. The day of the Lord is nearer now than when Obadiah preached. And the kingdom will belong to the Lord. Do you believe it? That day will come. None of us will escape it. None of us will have the resources, the intelligence, the wealth, the weapons to withstand that day. But we have been graciously and mercifully given a friend and a place of safety in the person of the Lord Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Trust him. Keep trusting him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the Holy Spirit you've given us the words of the scriptures to teach us, to challenge us, to comfort us and to discomfort us. Thank you, through the, thank you through the Lord Jesus Christ we have the hope of eternal life and that through faith in him we can look forward to that day of the Lord. Father, Empower us to be agents of your justice and compassion, even in this world. May we be men and women who stand for you, stand for your kingdom and for your justice. We pray that you would use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.